0: Last week we established from verses 17 and 18 that suffering is a normal and necessary part of the Christian life. The New Testament knows absolutely nothing of the prosperity Theology that is presently wrecking the third world church and is continuing to make the likes of Kenneth Copeland and Joel Osteen and Stephen Furtick and John Hagee and others incredibly wealthy. The foundation of prosperity theology is that the redemption that was purchased by Christ at the cross includes not only salvation from sin and judgment, but deliverance in this age from sickness, and from poverty in proportion to your faith. The inescapable implication of this kind of teaching is that the only reason then why a Christian would suffer is because of his or her unbelief. Well, tell that to the Apostle Paul, who in 2 Corinthians recounts his sufferings which he wears like a badge of honor as if his sufferings were actually the validation of his faith rather than some deficiency in his faith he writes in 2 Corinthians 11:23 are they servants of Christ and he's speaking of false apostles who were constantly seeking to undermine his authority and his ministry are they servants of Christ I am a better one. I am talking like a madman. Far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death. Watch what he's doing here. The validation of his legitimacy and authority as an apostle of Christ is his sufferings. I've been in far greater labors, far more imprisonments, In toil and in hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in other words, in poverty. In cold and exposure, and apart from all these other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? If I must boast then, I will boast in the things that show my weakness. In other words, my sufferings. I will boast in my sufferings because they are the validation of my faith, not my prosperity. Unless someone should object and say, yeah, 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 but all of those things that Paul just mentioned refer to persecutions, not to, not to sickness or poverty. I would point them to the very next chapter in which Paul speaks of his thorn in the flesh, which God gave to Paul specifically to keep him in weakness. Paul begged God three times to take it away. Three times he was told by God, no, no. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 8. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul did not view suffering as an aberration in the Christian life. He viewed it as the norm. So did Jesus, by the way, the Son of Man who had no place to lay his head and who calls us to follow him whilst we carry our cross. The point that suffering is a normal and necessary part of the Christian life is established for us in verse 17 of Romans chapter 8 where Paul says that we are children, and if children, we're heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified with him. You are a child of God through faith in Christ, and therefore an heir with Christ, if you suffer with Christ, in order that you may be glorified with With Christ. Paul makes suffering the necessary precondition for glorification, and not not for some of his children, like Paul, for all of us. In verse 18, Paul explained how he endured such suffering without giving up, without quitting, without saying to God, if this is how you treat your children, then I'm out. You can just keep your inheritance, I don't want it. Verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul says, I'll tell you how I endured all of those sufferings that I just read to you. How did he endure that? How did he endure? How did he persevere through that? Because he considered, he reckoned that the future glory so far outweighed the present sufferings, it wasn't even worth getting the scale out to measure." When you enter into the glory of your everlasting inheritance purchased for you by the Son of God, that glory will be so magnificent that you will fall at the feet of Christ and thank God for the suffering which he ordained for you. Because it has provided for you the capacity to enjoy the glory that is to be revealed. Right? 2 Corinthians 4:17. These light momentary afflictions, like imprisonments, beatings, stoning, you know those light things? Spending a day and night at sea, adrift on the deep. Those light and momentary afflictions are producing, producing, they are are bringing to us An eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. That's the purpose of your suffering. Suffering is God's ordained means of sanctifying you, of building you up in faith and in holiness, and of forming you into the kind of person who can enjoy all of the glory which he means to bestow upon you. That's how Paul can say in Romans 5-2 that through Christ... We have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that the sufferings are what bring us to that hope. That the sufferings produce endurance and endurance produces character and character produces that hope that we rejoice in. Suffering is the way God prepares all of his children for glory. Which means that every ounce of suffering you have ever or will ever experience as a believer is ordained for you by God to increase your everlasting enjoyment of his goodness. But while Paul has established the normalcy and the necessity of Christian suffering, he's explained what function suffering serves in the lives of those who are justified in Christ. He has yet to explain to us why suffering exists in the first place. Where did it come from? Why is it? That's what he's going to do now in verses 18 to 25. He's going to put the suffering of the children of God in a global, indeed in a cosmic context. In other words, these verses, this passage, verses 18 to 25, Paul explains how our suffering relates to God's cosmic plan to display his glory before all creation. Now, I recognize that at first glance that probably doesn't sound like much help to you in the midst of your present sufferings. In other words, if you are currently hurting, if you're currently suffering physically, emotionally, relationally, maritally, financially, vocationally, it may not immediately appear to you how knowing that God is using your pain in order to further his glory is supposed to be of comfort and help to you. You mean God is causing me to suffer so that he can show off. Well, I wouldn't put it quite like that, but yes. And Paul intends... For this to be of tremendous comfort to you in the midst of your suffering. So before we begin to to work our way through this text. I want to encourage you with three reasons. Why you ought to take comfort in the truth. That your suffering is part of God's plan to bring himself glory. Okay, I want to encourage you with three reasons why that truth ought to encourage you today. First. It means that your suffering is not meaningless. It's purposeful. You're not the victim of fate or coincidence or the random collision of atoms. God is doing something magnificent with your pain, which will become clear to you in due time. Second, it means your suffering is not unique. God's not picking on you. He's not bullying you. All the children of God, indeed all of creation, is suffering. It's not unique to you. Third, you are not a passive observer of God's glory, which He is constructing through your suffering. You are an active participant. Okay? Yes. God is using your suffering to display His glory. He is he's using your pain for the purpose of, of showing and demonstrating His magnificence in all of creation. But, He is glorifying Himself by glorifying you. Your suffering is going to produce for you an eternal weight of glory, and that is going to bring him infinite glory. Through your suffering, God is making you glorious, and in making you glorious, he's demonstrating his own glory. In your glory is God's glory. In other words, you're not being used like a paintbrush that gets all gummed up and misshapen and is just cast away. You're the canvas On which God is painting his masterpiece. And when that masterpiece is complete. All of creation will stand in awe. Of you. And give praise and glory. To the master who painted you. Therefore you should take comfort in God's cosmic purposes in your suffering. Because through your suffering. God is making you glorious in order that he. May be glorified. So the question before us is how? How does our suffering fit into God's cosmic plan for His own glory? Well, first, Paul explains that all of creation was subjected to futility in hope. And this includes the children of God. Look with me at verse 19. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. All right. In those verses, I see four stunning truths which place our present suffering in God's cosmic context to bring himself glory. Number one. God subjected creation to futility. All right, We're going to start in verse 20, and then we'll we'll back up and deal with verse 19 in a moment. In verse 20, Paul asserts three truths. He says, number one, creation was subjected to futility. Number two, he says this subjection was not of its own will, but was imposed from outside by the will of another. And number three, that the, the subjection was done with the design of hope was not a hopeless subjection. It was a hopeful subjection. All right, let's, let's deal with those three assertions in order. First, Paul says in verse 20, creation was subjected to futility. Okay. In in verse 22, Paul specifies that it's the whole creation, which was included in this subjection. Planets, stars, meteors, plants, trees, rivers, rabbits, birds, everything, was subjected to futility. Now, what Paul has in mind, obviously, is the narrative of Genesis chapter 3 and the fall of man and the curse which God placed even upon the ground. And to Adam, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. Because of Adam's sin, God cursed the ground. No more would it freely yield its abundance as it had in the garden. Now it would only grudgingly bring forth its fruit and that by blood and sweat and tears. Now Paul takes that foundational text in Genesis chapter 3 and he expands upon the theme. Not only is the ground curse, not only is agriculture affected by the sin of man, all of creation is subjected to futility. A word which is used in the Old Testament, in the Septuagint, to translate that word that you see so often in Ecclesiastes, vanity, futility, Purposelessness, or my favorite is frustration. Doug Moo writes that the word probably denotes the frustration occasioned by creation's being unable to attain the end for which it was made. See, creation was made for God's glory, it was made for man's enjoyment. Instead, because of man's sin, creation is unable to glorify God as it ought. And it seems to actively work against our enjoyment. It's in this state of futility, verse 20. This bondage to corruption, verse 21. It's groaning together, verse 22. Droughts and famines and hurricanes and tsunamis and pestilence and plagues and entropy and the second law of thermodynamics, which basically says that the universe exists in this closed system in which everything is just winding down and losing energy and falling apart. All of these things are the futility or the frustration of which Paul speaks. Second, notice that Paul asserts that it was God who subjected creation to this futility. It was not Adam. It was not Satan. It was God God cursed creation for Adam's sin. All of the misery, all of the futility and devastation wrought in creation results from God's judicial decree and his just execution of this sentence. How are we supposed to feel about that? Well, I think we should feel two things simultaneously. First, I think it, Really ought to astound us just how important God deems us to be in respect to creation. Creation rises and falls with the fate of mankind, which is vastly different than the evolutionary worldview, which says that the only thing that separates us from the lower animals is blind chance and a few million years of natural selection. It's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that God decreed that as man goes, so goes the rest of the created order. When humanity fell, creation was cursed. When humanity is redeemed and renewed, so will creation be. But second, I think it ought to sober us about the seriousness of sin. Sin is not merely a personal offense Affecting only the individual. Sin is a grotesque cosmic abomination that affects the stars and the planets. And the whole created order. In other words, when you see in the news a drought in East Africa that kills thousands. Or a tsunami in the Indian Ocean that wipes out of a quarter of a million people. Your first thought ought to be how devastating is my sin. Thirdly, notice that futility is not the final word on creation. When God subjected creation to futility, it was temporary. It wasn't permanent. God subjected creation to futility in hope. I don't like the comma that our translation puts in verse 20, that The original Greek didn't have punctuation, so I can't blame them for putting it in the wrong place, but they put it in the wrong place, right? It's not, but because of him who subjected it, full stop, in hope that creation itself, no, 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 he subjected it in hope. It was in hope that God subjected creation to futility. Hope of what? What? Hope that one day creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Again we see that God has tied the fortunes of creation to the fate of mankind. When the sons of God are revealed in glory, verses 18 and 19, then creation will also be swept into this glory. This is beautifully depicted you Lewis fans in the in the last battle the last of the chronicles of narnia in which Lewis insists that the glorification of narnia awaits the revelation of the sons of adam and the daughters of eve it can't start until they get there in fact i think Lewis had this passage in front of him as he wrote the last 20 pages or so of that series of that book The frustration experienced by creation that it cannot display the glory of God as it ought will one day come to an end. The shattered mirror that is creation will be restored and God's glory will shine through creation with unveiled splendor. If you think the heavens declare the glory of God now, you just wait. Second... God subjected not only the creation, but the children to futility. It's here, I think, that Paul anticipates a possible objection, a yeah, but, right? Most Christians would affirm that creation was cursed. Creation was subjected to futility because of the fall of man. Most Christians would furthermore affirm that unredeemed humanity, non-Christians remain under that curse and are likewise in bondage to corruption or decay. might be a better way to translate that. The prosperity gospel, the word of faith movement, believes that much. Where they go wrong is that they deny that the children of God share in this futility, this bondage to corruption. They think that regeneration... And the healing and renewal and freedom won by Christ in the atonement liberates us from the bondage of corruption and rescues us from that futility now. They think that for the children of God, the ground does not yield thorns and thistles. It yields abundance and prosperity in proportion to our faith. For the children of God, corruption and decay do not enslave our bodies. Healing and strength belong to them in proportion to our faith. And Paul comes along in Romans 8 and he says, no. Not only creation, but we ourselves. Not only the children of the world, but we who have the first fruits of the spirit. We groan too. As we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. Paul says this is not the age of glory. This is the age of groaning. This is the age of cancer. And arthritis. And Alzheimer's and broken hips, and torn ACLs, and the flu, and depression, and frustrating jobs, and irritating co-workers, and demanding bosses, and broken hot water heaters, and flooded basements, and all of the other frustrating, futile sufferings that afflict us. Those things belong to this age. By the way, verse 23 proves to me that Paul does not speak only of those sufferings that come as the result of persecution. Rather, he refers to all of the groanings which result from living in an unredeemed body because we're groaning as we're awaiting the redemption of our bodies. The groaning is inward. It's in our bodies that we groan. And all this, even though we have the first fruits of the Spirit... In other words, God has subjected not only creation, but his own children to futility. And we will remain subject to futility. We will remain subject to groaning and bondage to corruption until we receive the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now, it's true that, in a sense, we've already been adopted. That's what Paul said up in verse 14. All who are led by the Spirit of God are not will be, are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons. You've received it already. And by that spirit, we cry out, Abba, Father, because he's our father now. And the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are now the children of God. We've already been adopted and we've not yet been adopted. Both are true. We've not yet entered into that adoption in full. So I want you to imagine with me a scenario. I just sort of invented this to try to give us an understanding of what Paul's talking about. Of the tension between the already and the not yet. Imagine that you are an orphan. Living in Vietnam or Russia or the Gambia. Some place far away, mired in poverty, where life is brutal and hard. One day out of nowhere a well-dressed man arrives at your dilapidated orphanage and informs you that he is an advocate. He's a representative of a wealthy man who lives in a faraway country, a place of glory and splendor and abundance and freedom and peace and joy, and that this wealthy man has adopted you. He selected you. He wants you. The paperwork's already in. All the legal hurdles have been crossed. You are now legally, now, the child of this kind and generous and wealthy man. But your home is not yet prepared. There are still some other things your adoptive father has to do, some more business he has to attend to before your arrival. And furthermore, there are lessons that he desires you to learn before he, he calls you home. But he sent his advocate, his representative, and he's going to stay with you. He's going to remain with you to help you, to assure you of your new adoptive status, even though you can't see it. And so in this interim period, you continue to live in your brutal, poverty-stricken homeland, subject to all of the troubles that afflict all the rest of your countrymen. But now your experience is different. Because now you live in the hope and the certainty of that coming day of adoption, that day of redemption. And furthermore, you have the advocate with you day by day to guide you, to help you, to protect you, to provide nourishment for you, to assure you of your father's promise that one day he's coming to get you. You're not yet home, but neither are you alone. And you live on the hope of that coming day. That's that's what Paul is envisioning by saying that you've been adopted as sons. And you are eagerly awaiting the adoption as sons. By God's decree, you continue to share in all of the futility and corruption and groaning of the whole creation. Even though you are a child of God. Why? Because now is not the age of glory. It's the age of groaning. Third, God subjected both creation and children in hope. That age of glory, he says, is coming, and it is in that hope that you were subjected to futility. It's in that hope that God placed creation under bondage to corruption. In other words, the hope came first, and in that hope, creation was subjected. The hope came first, and in that hope, the children of God were likewise subjected The hope came first. The plan came first. The plan of redemption came first. All of the misery of life, all of the suffering of this world, it's not some divine overreaction to the sin of man. It is a planned and purposeful drama designed to display the glory of God. The earth is a stage on which the drama of redemption is being played out before the eyes of the cosmos, and the fall of man and the curse of creation is not the final act. This present act, the one filled with darkness and sadness and futility, is merely setting the stage for the glory to be revealed in the final act. But God had the end in mind when he wrote the beginning. And that first act, the fall, the curse, the subjection, the futility, the frustration, that was all written, ordained, prescribed for you in hope of the final act that he had already written. Which means that your present suffering is both purposeful, It's an integral part of the grand drama of redemption which God is directing. Plays that just have one final act aren't that interesting. They're not that glorious. Your suffering is a part of the falling action of this drama that's leading to the tension that is going to lead to the consummation and the glory. But neither is your suffering permanent. It will come to an end. The curtain will fall on this present act, and one day the final act will begin. Fourthly, this hope is the revelation of the sons of God. That's the final act. According to verse 19, when the curtain opens on that final act, what will be seen are the children of God resurrected, raised, and glorified in splendor. According to verse 21, it is the day when creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. According to verse 23, it's the adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. That's the final act. There is coming a day. The Bible calls it the day of the Lord, the last day. When Christ will return in power and great glory, he will call his children of God to come home, he will raise them up from the grave, he will raise them up from the earth, he will glorify them in the presence of all creation. Jesus described it himself like this, then will appear in the heavens the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with power and great glory, and he will send forth his angels, and they will gather together with a loud trumpet call they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to another that's the redemption the revelation of the sons of God Paul put it like this in first Thessalonians 4 the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first then we who are alive who remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air And then we shall always be with the Lord. That's the revelation of the sons of God. John puts it like this. Beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him just as he is. That's the freedom of the glory of the children of God. It's the day when we will shed this mortal flesh like a cocoon and we will emerge victorious and glorious in splendor, shining like the sun, says Daniel chapter 12, verse 3. It's the day when creation or the day for which creation waits with eager longing. That's a good verb. It's a, it's a compound verb, a triple compound verb in the Greek And it's found only in Christian literature. Paul made this word up because it suited his purpose. It means literally to stretch one's head out from. Apokarodokia. To stretch, there's the dekomai, one's head, kara, out from. It's the idea of like straining forward to see what lies ahead. Creation is awaiting our revelation so eagerly that it's craning its neck. It's standing on tiptoe. It's waiting to rise, waiting to see us rather rise above the horizon like the morning sun. In February, we got a dog. I didn't want a dog. I knew a dog would be messy and expensive, almost as messy and expensive as kids. But it was five on one, and so we got Lucy from a rescue shelter up in Lake of the Ozarks. Lucy is a, a fluffy, shih tzu, poodle, yorkie mix with probably some other breeds thrown in there somewhere. And at any rate, Lucy quickly established herself as the head and the center of our family, breaking about every rule that we established for her and thereby writing her own. And I tell you all of this because when I read this word, eager longing. Eager, awaiting, head stretched out, right? I think of Lucy because that's the way she waits for us to get home. When we're not there, or if only one of us is there because Lucy is supremely dissatisfied with anything less than all six of us being home, she she perches atop our couch and she stares with unblinking eyes out the front door waiting to see us pull into the driveway, then if we, if we walk in the door and we fail to duly acknowledge her, she will run and she will jump back on the top of the couch so she can get herself up to our level and her body will wiggle and she'll emit this low whine like she's about to burst from uncontrollable excitement as if she's going to spontaneously combust un- unless we greet her. That's the way creation is waiting for our revelation. And not only creation, but the children of God are awaiting that day like that as well. Verse 23, not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Is that how you're waiting? On your tiptoes? Head outstretched? Bursting with excitement? In other words, your glorification is the pivot on which all creation turns. And your present suffering is the necessary prerequisite to your future glorification. And unless you suffer with him, verse 17, you will not be glorified with him. If someone were then to ask, why is suffering the necessary prerequisite to glory? I would answer, because God does all things For the glory of his name and what would glorify him more than when his people endure suffering out of love for and faith in him. What could glorify God more than when my world, my health, my relationships, my finances, my job, my safety, my life, my future as I planned it out to be crumbles to the ground around me. And I respond by saying it's okay because I've still got Christ and Christ is enough. So having placed our suffering in a cosmic context, Paul then makes personal application to the believers in the Roman church and therefore to us as well. Verse 24, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So not only were we subjected to futility in hope, we were also saved in hope. Just as the futility and frustration and the bondage to corruption to which all creation, verse 21, and we ourselves, verse 23, were subjected is temporary, right? Temporary. We were subjected in hope. Even so, the goal of our salvation is not yet experienced because we were saved in hope. We are right now only half saved, to borrow a phrase from John Stott. We are already and not yet saved. Our condemnation has now been removed, verse 1. We have now been liberated from the law of sin and death, verse 2. We are now indwelt by the very Spirit of God, verse 9 and 14. We have now the spirit of adoption assuring us of our status before God, verses 16 and 17. All of those realities... That Paul has spoken of in Romans chapter 5 are past tense events and present tense possessions. But the goal of our salvation. The glory to be revealed to us, verse 18. The revelation of the sons of God, verse 19. The freedom of the glory of the children of God, verse 21. The adoption of sons. The redemption of our bodies, verse 23. All of those things await a future date. We are saved... And we will be saved. Therefore, we are saved and we are not yet saved. We are saved in hope of being saved. Which means, Paul adds, that the glory, the adoption, the redemption of our bodies is not a present possession. If it were something that could be seen and experienced now, then we would not have been saved in hope. Hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. Therefore, our present experience is not one of glory, but one of groaning. And our present call is to wait for the fulfillment of our hope with patience. A word which refers to the bearing up under intense pressure. So do you understand what Paul is saying to you this morning? This present age is not the age of glory. It's the age of groaning, which is precisely what is wrong with prosperity theology. Which does not have to take the extreme form of Kenneth Hagin and Kenneth Copeland and Jesse Duplantis and John Hagee and all the other nonsensical, false teachers on TV. It doesn't have to be that extreme in order to be dangerous. All it has to do, all false teaching has to do is deny the normalcy and necessity of suffering. The normalcy and the necessity of groaning and therefore deny the need for patient endurance and careful perseverance and it will leave disillusionment and destruction in its wake. If you don't believe that you were saved in hope, you're not going to know what to do with the suffering that is inevitably coming upon you. So how do we wait for it with patience? How do we persevere in hope in spite of the pain? Well, we've seen that we were subjected in hope. We've seen that we've been saved in hope. I want to close by showing you now how to suffer in hope. We've already seen the key to this up in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul says the same thing down in verse 22, this time using the metaphor of childbirth. We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we're groaning in the pains of childbirth. Last week, I gave you an illustration from John Piper, that says that if you're in a hospital room and you hear loud groaning from the the room across the hall, it makes all the difference in the world whether you're in the maternity ward or the oncology unit. Because the groans of the maternity ward are the groans of impending life, while the groans of the oncology unit are likely the groans of impending death. The groans of the children of God are the groans of impending Life. We are giving birth. Creation is giving birth. All of history is giving birth, which means that right now, we ourselves, all of creation, all of history are in the pangs of childbirth. contraction. And that is what you've got to know if you're to wait for it with patience. If you are to suffer with Christ in order that you may be glorified with Christ. If you're to persevere in faith and not give up and throw away your inheritance. You've got to know that all of your groaning will produce glory. The glory of new life. So remember that as you suffer. So that you may suffer in hope. And I'll leave you this morning with the words of Christ, which he himself gave to his disciples before he sent them out to suffer in hope. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. It hurts. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now. But I will see you again and your heart will rejoice. And no one will take your joy from you.